Welcome to the Transform Sales Podcast, where forward-thinking business leaders come to share their experiences and ideas, learn from each other, and amplify their results together. Hey guys, Amir Ryder here with the Transform Sales Podcast. I got my guest, Owen Richards. Owens, what's going on, man? Nice. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Good to be in. Likewise, likewise. I think it's the first time we had the opportunity to meet, but we've been communicating and I've been I've been commenting over the years on your posts. Sorry yeah, if I comment. As always, as well. Yeah, keep keep him busy. Where, where are you based these days? You're you're, you're out in uh, where? Where UK? Yeah, in the UK, based in the UK. Home is Exeter in the southwest, but um, spend a lot of time in London as well. So uh, dotted around the south of the UK. Nice, nice. I appreciate you joining us today. I think we all know that the outsource sales B two B industry is booming, right? Um, more and more buyers are coming in to find agencies. For us today, the goal is just really for for people listening who who either have outsourced sales before and have felt that the results were not uh, uh, optimal or are considering hiring an outsourced agencies, it'd be great for them to just kind of hear a first per person experience of what buyers have done right and what they've done wrong. But before I get into that, it'd be great if people, if you could tell all the listeners your story and how you got into outsourced sales to begin with. Um, yeah, I, like every everybody, I suppose, I fell into it, uh, which is the classic line, but the, 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 the long story cut short is after university, I went to Australia traveling for a year. Um, thought I thought my money would last longer than it did. Um, and uh, it lasted a very small number of weeks. So I had to get a job. And in those days, um, the way you found a job was in the local newspaper. Uh, this is pre job boards and all the rest of it. Um, and I found a, a, what was not called an SDR role in those days, but was called a telemarketing rep role for a, an outsourced sales business that was less than a year old, eight or nine people, mainly part-time. And I thought, you know what, that suits me. I've graduated from university. It's fairly low level. I can get in, do it. It's just talking to people, isn't it? Um, and that was my mentality. So I went into that temporarily for a few months while I was traveling. Um, thought I'll find- So you're an extrovert. You're an extrovert and you decided to feed yourself with, with energy. Yeah. Other people. That's on, that's on. And it was, it was something that, you know, in a, in a transient world where most people won't give you a job unless you want to work in a cafe or a bar that, that didn't necessarily suit, suit me because I wanted to be out at night and doing things. Um, it worked well. So took that, found I was half decent at it. Um, ended up being with that company for eight years, ended up running that company or running that organization, grew it to, to 120 people. Um, and then when my wife and I, we stayed in Australia for eight years, and then my wife and I came back to the UK. When we you should have been the stunt double for, for the guy who plays Thor. What's his name? Liam something? <laughs> right, his name. Oh, my team would rib me for that. I tell like you it's you either the stunt double or, or else for sales. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I did the one I could do better. Let's put it that way. <laughs> when, you, when you said that you fell into it, did you fall onto a concrete floor or into a nice, comfortable bed? Like, where, like it changes the story when you say you fall into something. Well, what did you fall into? Well, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of both. So I, I think probably, probably a, a, depending on which side of the bed I, I slept on is the answer. So I think from an organization, organizational perspective, I fell into a brand new company that had nothing that was very manual, no process. It was very startup, very startup. Um, but in many ways that was brilliant because it meant I was in early and I was learning and doing as I, yeah. as I went. And uh, the, the biggest part of it is that I fell into uh, a brilliant leader. So 
uh, Richard Forrest, who was my boss there and the CEO of that organization, is now my business partner. Um, we've worked together for well over 15 years. So he went from, you know, he was my mentor, career mentor, one of my closest friends in the world, in some ways a father figure for me as well, at 22, 23 years old, moving to the other side of the world. And he's 25 yeah. years my senior CEO of the company, taught me a lot of what I, what I learned in my early years and ended up investing in the business that I launched in the UK. So he's now my business partner. So from that perspective, very lucky to land where I did. No, that sounds awesome. I, I wasn't able to get my mentor um, and advisory board member to invest in my company. I'm still trying to win them over years later. <laughs> so good, job, good job with that one. Um, so it's good. So, I, so you, you know, you've you've been through the startup grind, which was a lot of you know buyers that come by from us. They're probably traded some other startups. Um, people listening to this call, if we were to speak to them and kind of tell them the mistakes that buyers have made when they approached you in order for them to kind of absorb it and be like, I'm not going to make that same mistake. What comes to mind? Like, what are the top mistakes? Um, that come to mind where you're like, man, if buyers came to me and just did these things differently, I probably can make them more money or more ROS because let's face it, in our business, it's really all about a return on sales, right? Um, talk to me about that because I know that it's something that as an owner frustrated me when I was a service company where I was just like, where did you get this number 15 from? Your, your average contract value is a million dollars. You need one. Like, what are they doing? What mistakes are they making? I yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, I think the biggest thing I see is that there is a, a completely unfounded expectation that an outsource sales org can do what you can't um, because they are magicians, experts, uh, miracle workers. So things that we can't do, shorten your sales cycle by a great deal. If you've got a six month sales cycle, we can't make it one month. Um, yeah. We can't... Uh, we can't um, check, we can't find your perfect buyer in every meeting that we book. Uh, we can't change the fact that your reps will have to learn and ramp. So, when, you know, when you've got a three-month sales cycle, but you're uh, talking to an agency or an outsourced sales business that you're using six weeks in and measuring them on revenue, um, it's highly unlikely it's going to be a good measurement. So I think it's almost like there's a suspension of disbelief when it comes to an outsource um, provider that they can do the impossible because you can't do it yourself. And that's what they do for a living. Remember they do it. Look, they're good at it. Not because they're miracle workers. I, I can't agree with you more. I'm like, I've seen that so many times. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, like what you just said is a lot to it, right? Because what I'm listening to is like, they don't have a go to market plan. They don't understand the financial model to begin with. Right. They don't understand business development and the handoffs and checkpoints that are required for it. Right? The customer support case comes in. Did you answer the question? Did you close the support case? Did you send an NPS out? Right. But in sales, we have a, a, a customer can now be touched by, you know, SEO inbound um, five, you know, five, let's call it outbound call, a, a comment on LinkedIn that we never met a comment on your LinkedIn. Right. So. So they, they, they basically are hiring an outsourced agency because they don't have the skills inside. But why do they default towards craziness? Like, why is why is it that if you don't know what's really happening, instead of asking, they tend to fall into like, I want meetings and I want results now. It's like, really, it's almost strange because it's almost as if it's almost as if they're they know they're not trained, but they have this concept that because you're a seller of the services, they need to beat you up and be, they're going to win. 
they're going to win, right? If they want, if they want, if their sales cycle is six months, admittedly, and they want to ROI in three months, but they get you to say yes and hire you, they're going to win. But they don't win; they lose. What's going yeah. on here? I, I think there's two things at play. One is something that I often say to people, and and, and I don't think many people have identified, which is most clients going to an outsourced provider are going uh, too late. So they don't go strategically as a plan. They go because they've failed internally, probably more than once. They've got some desperation in there. They're running towards your, I mean, how many times do you hear a company coming and saying, we need to outsource some of this because we haven't got the headcount and we need an in-year in -year revenue number, or we need to drive a million pounds of extra pipe by the end of the year. And you think, how long have you known this for? This isn't a strategic forward thinking plan. This is something you're doing because it's already too late. And therefore, yeah. there's a more desperation in the tone and, 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 and urgency, which, go back to what I said earlier, we can be quick, we can be prompt, we can do things well, but we can't change the physics of the world. Um, and unfortunately, we're expected to. So I think that's... So, so like just in general statements, and I agree with you, there's this general concept that everybody is an expert at sales until they're not. And then by the time they look for an outsourced agency, it's already because they have a problem. And then that problem pushes them to expect things now, which just is ultimately like, you're going to die. You might as well save your money. Right. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, see it all the time. As an organization that might, might be just die against this year's targets or whatever it might be. But I, I always give the, see the other mistake I, I, I see is that people are conditioned by their current environment. So a lot of that will be founder led early stage sold through their network, inbound inquiries or whatever it might be. Um, and then they treat outbound like it's inbound. So their expectation is that they're going to sit in a meeting that an outsourced sales provider will book and they'll just, they'll just be ready to buy within 28 days and they'll be keen to move things forwards. And you and I know it's a very different strategy to turning up to a meeting that's been booked by outbound and taking it through a sales cycle. I always preach about the fact that when our sales cycle for inbound is fewer than, is about three and a half weeks and it's fairly steadily around that as an mm -hmm. average close close one um, time frame. When we launched our outbound program, probably about six months, 12 months into the business, when we were mature enough that I wanted to actually hire somebody dedicated to being an SDR for us, um, it took a standing start six months to the day to close our first deal from that. Could we have closed something? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. We could have done, but we didn't. Um, we could have given up so many times before that. And that's, that, that's consistently a high performing channel for us now, but it takes six to 12 months to get you there. And you've got to, I appreciate you saying that. that that wasn't a question, but it's good. You brought that up. I, 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 what I noticed is that when CloudTask was a service company, which we're not, we're a marketplace, we did month by month opportunities in the beginning and they churned. Then we did six month, 12 month contracts and we had a really good reputation and we had really good results. And now that we're a marketplace again, we are helping uh, agencies and buyers. And we noticed that the buyers that don't do contracts turn faster than the ones that do agreements. And are not happier, right? I've seen I've seen companies that had a, agreements like the place that were released because they weren't happy. Nobody's really keeping them to it to the T. Yeah. If if it's not you know something that's their fault, um, so you think six to twelve months? And I'll I'll agree with you, right? I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Do you think that that six to twelve month um, has a lot to do also with the average contract value? Or is there anything that says like, hey, if your average contract value is above thirty five k, expect six to twelve months. If your product's five thousand, maybe. SDRs don't even have an ROI on it, but you'll get faster results. Is there, is that yeah, changed? That's, that's it. You know, you know, you spot on it. There's a number of things, you know, who, who's the persona you're trying to get hold of, who you're trying to talk to, what's your sales value? What's your sales length? Is it contract seasonal stuff where they're in two, three year contracts? Is it more transactional, nice to have, over need to have? 
it's all that sort of context that you just you, know, you just don't know. And I think also the stage of the organization. So where we pick up a client who's got a, a, a mature outbound go-to-market strategy, they may be using us as headcount flex, being able to bring people in on top, a resource increase, testing something new. They understand it. So they've already done a lot of the learning for you. Whereas if you get somebody who's at seed series A looking to launch outbound for the first time or tried it a few times internally and failed, we've got to do the trial and error a bit for them. So naturally that's going to take, uh, going to take much longer. And I think the reality if, is- If I unpack what you just said, are you also saying that buyers make the mistake of not understanding the difference between a market validation campaign and a campaign designed for an ROS or ROI? Is that what you're really saying? Yeah, That's what I'm hearing. I, I think, yeah, I am. I, I don't think people would ever acknowledge that they would invest for a market validation campaign. It's kind of crazy that they won't because they're yeah. out of control nuts and they're, they're like, literally it's, it's, I think it's part of this like on demand culture where it's like, if I'm paying, I want it now. Right. And all of a sudden all the logic doesn't make sense because they're paying and it's, it, it's weird because it's almost as if they have. They have this tendency to feel proud about their ability to hire you fast and fire you fast and blame it on you. Really weird. But let's make it real clear to anybody listening. If you haven't gone to market yet and you haven't tested your messaging, the reasons why people will meet with you to your ICPs, predicting an ROI is silly because it's not step one. It's, it's step two, right? Now, can you plan a market validation campaign and potentially get an ROI? Sure you can especially if the steps are done right. And especially if market validation is positive, right? But if you think you're going to, if you think you're shooting for an ROI on a nine month sales cycle in six months without market validation, you will fire any agency and blame it on them. Yeah. You will. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we have a responsibility to communicate that. So I can't tell you um, how often I hear, see content from, people in our sector, both good and bad, preaching about how amazing their results are, how the return on what they do is X, and they book X number of meetings a week and all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're selling our services based on the dream rather than the reality. And I think 100%. We have a responsibility to educate clients and get them to either buy from us for the right reason or don't buy from us. And that's the best outcome for everybody. But I think it's almost like we're scared. Of doing I, that. I ripped apart CloudTask for this reason, man. I, I was doing financially very well. We were, we were a very good organization. I just remember going to like Barcelona one weekend and like almost a hundred K MRR was in trouble. And I flew back and I remember just being like, man, this is, it's great. Like we're profitable, we have a good reputation, but like fundamentally buyers and sellers are just beating each other up. And, and, and if they can just actually listen to what they're doing wrong, and learn that way. Like, how do you think doctors learn, right? They're like, and scientists, they're literally absorbing content of failure, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then yeah. making adjustments against failure. That's what doctors do. I tried this operation 10 times and the patient keeps dying. You know what I mean? What's different? Mm -hmm. but they don't do that with sales, but that's yeah. what they should be doing. They should be actually researching what has gone wrong because what has gone wrong is what we can learn from, right? The, the magic of, I got 15 meetings. That's not, you're not going to learn anything. What they learn from that is the sizzle, not the steak. Mm. And, and we, have, we have a lot of Americans that are chasing that sizzle, right? They're chasing the word AI personalization. They're not, they're not chasing the, did we connect with a thousand of our target accounts? Have a uh, connect with them at a 20 percent connect rate, have a 5% meeting rate and convert 20%. Like there's math behind this and like winning by design 
Uh, Hako does an amazing job of breaking down the math, but nobody reads it because it's too accurate and it's too scientific. They want the fluff. So what do we do to help people in that, in that situation? Like, how do you help a buyer with these things? Because if you tell them the truth, they can just go to a science or someone else who tells them whatever they want to hear. Yeah, and I think probably they need to do that, is the honest answer. They need to do that because that's the way that... that, that they need to lose are. money. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what people are doing anyway, right? If you go and use an agency and your expectation is a, a return on that investment and you get market insight at best, then you, you effectively can put that down as money lost if you're not using that market insight and trying to, 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 to leverage it. So I think, you know... Uh, Ultimately, you've got to sleep at night, haven't you? So as a, as a founder of an organization where clients are coming and spending money with us, I accept that we're not always going to be able to achieve what our client wants us to achieve. And that might be down to our performance on the day because it's a people yeah. business and that's life. Or it might be down to the strategy that's agreed or the restrictions that are there or the market conditions. Or it might be down to the fact that what the client wants us to achieve is completely unrealistic. Or the offer does that value, right? Yeah, Maybe the offer does that value. Yeah, yeah, and we. I'm like, if you look at like software development companies, they call me all the time, right? And they never listen mm -hmm. to me. And it's like, it's like the black hole, right? Software development companies, they go to market like this. Hey, oh wait, we got 20 PHP developers in India and like seven JavaScript, blah 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 blah, right? Like, I get all these messages, and I'm like, I, I say to myself, I'm like, man, if the software development companies actually gave an offer of, we're gonna make you a product requirement document worth ten thousand dollars. This document is needed. Before any project ever comes, can I earn 30 minutes of your time where I'll give you this product requirement document roadmap, make it for you? And hopefully, if you want to work with us on the project, great. If not, they would get so much more meetings, so much business, but they can't do it. You know why? Because they can't listen. And they don't read books, like the $100 million offer from, from Alex Hermosi. But like people really, in my opinion, separate, they, they, they forget to understand that we live in a world where like if you're in a category of like sales intelligence, right? And and you're competing with Gong, Chorus, Exec Vision, competing with like 30 companies, right? How is your offer any different than theirs? Why is someone mm -hmm. gonna meet with them over you? And they're they're really spending no money in creativity. And they're not actually, because for me, a market validation also means like, hey, am I talking to the right people? But like, do they actually like what I'm saying? Are mm -hmm. they actually taking meetings? Because oftentimes people will buy because of, of one feature and they'll they'll grow because of the others, right? And people don't focus on the concept, there's not enough teaching that why people meet with you is oftentimes different than why people buy from you, right? And I think it's hurting buyers. I'm like, what do you think about that? Like, have you have you ever kind of mulled that idea yeah, over? You know, I, I think you're spot on with that last line there around why people meet with you and why they buy from you is very different for starters. I think it's, um, it, it, you know, Here's the point, right? People aren't analyzing their sales process full stop. They're not thinking about what they're doing. They're making knee-jerk responses based on what's happened in the last month or quarter, buying too late from agencies like us, uh, and, and making uneducated decisions because they're not prepared to listen or because agencies aren't talking about it. And, and you know, it is a very difficult landscape because as a service provider, you want to grow, you want to win clients, you want to have the chance to prove yourself, don't you? But that's very difficult when you've got clients that just, I don't want to say just don't get it because I don't think that's fair. I think we have to help them to get it, but uh, listen. Which you are right now, by the way. That's why I got you on this call to extract it and give it to people's ears, but yeah. yeah. You know, you go back to your example, Gong and the rest of it. The, the beauty of, of most of our clients that work in finance, tech, SaaS, whatever it might be, 
they've got a product where when you press the buttons, it works. It does what it's meant to do all the time. Um, they've got 99.9%, uptime. You know, it's fairly predictable. Yeah, things go wrong, but it's few and far between. If you change the amount of money they spend on their product and turn that into a people resource, trust me, there'd be a hell of a lot of things that go wrong and then they quickly understand why it's so challenging. So no agency puts reps on a campaign and thinks, ah, oh, we want to fail. Don't get any meetings on this one. Or when you do, make sure they don't turn up. Make sure they're bad ones. You know, people generally are good people working hard to be the best that they can be, but they've got to deliver that, 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 that service within a certain budget, with a certain margin, so on and so forth. And they're trying to do that with people who are typically early mid-stage career at best, you know, typically in their 20s, maybe in their 30s. And that ranges, I'm being generalistic. But, you know, with that comes all sorts of HR issues, all sorts of inconsistency, a lack of career uh, maturity and commercial acumen, you know, which I work through those things. But the, the key thing is it will be no different if you did this internally. And what we need to do between supplier and, and, and buyer is align what reality is, not what myth is. And myth is... I love reality. I well, love reality. And people hate you either get there together collaboratively or you get there through spending money and losing money, which just doesn't Well, matter. one of the things that you said that, that resonates with me is that it's going to happen internally and externally, but the way they're treated is very different. And I think it, and I think it comes down to, I wrote an article about it, about the adversarial approach of buyers and sellers, right? I think if you're hiring five SDRs and you bring them internally, they're treated so differently because of this concept that they're internal, even though that they can quit or get fired at the same yeah. time, right? But then the agency is treated with craziness because it's so easy to be like, I hired I hired this agency, they promised me this, I'm gonna fire them. But then John comes in like, oh, John just needs some time, he had a bad day, we need to train him more, we need to coach him more. Do you think it has a lot to do with people, like what? why, why do people treat, why is $10,000 spent to an employee different than $10,000 spent to a vendor? Like, where's the fundamental difference? I, th I think there's, there's two things. One is it looks different on a P&L. So if you put uh, an SDR salary in a, an organization that's spending 100 grand a month on salary, suddenly it's 102 grand or 100 and whatever it works out to, depending on which currency you're in. It's just absorbed. You don't see it. You don't see the on costs that come with that, the national insurance or the tax on top of that, payroll tax. We have no idea. So all those things that you don't even see it. So nobody ever throws eyes on it. Whereas if you go and put that two, five, ten grand a month um, on a PL on a separate line in isolation, it's probably one of, if not the biggest supply, external supplier cost there is. So it gets more scrutiny. Um, that's, that's interesting because, you know, I almost want to write a blog article now, right? Why leaders should put um, their SDR in an expense bucket. Because you know what? You have an average employment of a year, 0.2 months. Why are you even bothering putting it on top of the line? And that's yeah. a good way. You can't see it, right? You can't see yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't see it in the same way. And also, I think, you know, if, if an organization needed to reduce headcount um, and the cost of salaries, most of the time, they wouldn't go directly to revenue contributors. They look for non-revenue contributing yeah. roles. If you treated those of the same, and an external SDR or who's booking you meetings or ramping to, to, to get your meetings that are going to close next quarter, quarter after, and internally, you've probably got people internally that business-wide, it, it would make more sense to move those salaries out than it would your SDRs, whether internal or external. But people will yeah. move the external SDRs because they're an external cost. It's less emotional. There's no ties. I don't have to walk into the office and see those people. I haven't got to, to, to I don't know their families. I don't know, you know, there's that personal disconnect. Um, yeah. I think the other thing is that 
you know, it's easy to set and forget. It's an email or a Teams call or whatever it might be, and it's not personal in any way. And I think that that, that agencies have a responsibility to try and bridge, bridge that gap. I feel like one of the biggest values of an outsourced agency, in my opinion, is to kind of like help with that emotional component and help A-B test, mm -hmm. right? These companies don't have any protection. There's no protection on their pipeline. They love their five SDRs and their five SDRs get a call from San Francisco for Salesforce, a bunch of stock options. They go, peace out. And then what are they going to Oh, you're a full-time employee. Why are you leaving? Right? I feel like protect yourself because if you have an agency and you have an SDR team, you can start doing math and dividing the cost per meeting and don't fire them because they're higher because they're going to oscillate, right? Like, like it's one team or one company, but the price will change, but you have no protection if your SDR team has gone. You have no protection if, if the SDR team for the outsourced company doesn't perform and you don't return. Like, I think I, I live in a world where a company should measure its forecast, follow its business plan, right? And be emotionless. Um, and I feel like almost hiring an SDR company to, is a good, it's a good way of training yourself to be a little emotionless because I think people need that. They don't want to hear it, right? But I think they need it. I think, I think their P&Ls will benefit from it. Yeah, and it's amazing I, how many clients will still manage us as an agency week to week. Didn't get enough meetings this week. You're thinking, Jesus, like how, if you manage your own business internally in that reactive estate. Because they know it'll quit. They know their employees would quit and find a job in two seconds. Correct, correct, correct. Um, that's what they know, which is funny. I'm like, look, I, I was below forecast for a company called NetSuite. And by the time I was getting a pip, I had an offer from Oracle for three times as much. So like, it's, it's, a, it's a weird world we're living where like yeah. meteorocracy and crap is being rewarded to the individual level, which is strange. Mm. I don't think it'll happen that much longer. Um, I think it's going to change just the way like, you know, companies now have to be more profitable and valuations got crushed. I think we're going to have a little bit of a shakeup between those employees that produce and those that don't. Um, tell me a little bit about like your best, not your, like, not like case study, but like someone's listening to this and they're trying to figure out whether or not you're a best fit for them. What do they look like? Is it software? Is it a service? Is it a VP of sales? Is it a CEO? Is it series A? Is it publicly traded? What's, what's the best fit for you guys and what could they expect? I think, I think the best fit, and you know, again, there's lots of other examples of good clients, but the best fit for us is always somebody who is been through outbound and understands it. So um, I, I look at our our um, longest retained clients that spend the most amount of money with us and who are the happiest. And they've all got a team internally who do outbound or have done outbound internally. They get it. They understand the the the, the, the ebbs and the flows, the things that go right and wrong. They're not, as you said, emotional in the way they respond to things. They're logical. They're data driven. Um, and, and they've got a good handle on, on the sales cycle and the maturity of their decision making. So I think much harder to make it work at the early stage. I really enjoy personally early stage SaaS businesses. And, and to answer your question, SaaS and finance are the two markets we do the most work in. Love it. Yeah. Um, finance, we've got some particular expertise in. I think we kind of, a bit like uh, you do a lot of things, we stumbled into finance by mistake. With a really Is it finance or like ERPs? Or like all, all no, kind of financial more, more more banking finance financial okay. loans that kind of stuff so we fell into a big client about five or six years ago about five years ago just after we launched actually um and we've really leveraged that relationship and and that market and we've brought so much knowledge that i think we've oh. got a unique skill set in that which we didn't necessarily plan to have we just kind of uh did well at, it at the time but i think yeah outside of sectors and um 
you know, everything you do is B2B and that sort of stuff. We, we have those two client buckets, the mature ones who get it or understand it, and the ones that are early stage. I enjoy that bit really. They're more fun, less profitable. But the tolerance, tolerance for failure is what I always say. You know, a client that is right for us has a tolerance for failure because whether you use Well, it's even different, right? Like, like you can have a tolerance for failure or you can understand that failure is the business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm not about failure I lost my money. I'm talking about getting rejections, learning and making adjustments, right? Like a close rate from 10% to 12% with a hundred thousand dollar ACV is a big difference. Like these are all incremental changes. What I listened to also is you described, you described a buyer that has an internal team and external team and treats it like one. So you were also saying that a, a, a buyer that's not adversarial, you versus me, right? Mm. You're not you versus me. You're all about the math and numbers. You're not emotional. You got product market fit. You come to Owens and you get, you get results, right? Yeah. But it's hard to qualify those things. Yeah, and we've seen that with clients that look like they're a really good fit, but they can't get over that hurdle, that barrier of it's not us and, and it's our team versus your team. So strange. I find it so weird. I hold everybody in the same. The same. Uh, if I spend a dollar, I have the same expectation for that dollar, whether it's a W2. If anything, I think I think that there's more liability and risk with employees. Personally, mm -hmm. I think they're I think they're more... I think it's more dangerous um, yeah. because of how the government set up. Well, governments want tax money, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they want tax money. They want tax money with more. So it's like some rules that like kind of are set up for the government, right? Yeah. Um, and, and a good way of protecting yourself from that is A/B testing with both. You even said it. Your companies that, that are highly successful do both. Ours too, right? Mm -hmm. That when we were a legacy business, right? We were were the ones that had both. So that makes a lot of sense. Where can people find you if they're a fintech company, they're not adversarial, they got product market fit, and they just wanna make money without going crazy and, and wanting an ROI in six months on a nine month sales cycle, where can they find you? Um, so two, two places, um, you find me on LinkedIn if you wanna to talk to me, um, Owen Lippert's Air Marketing, um, and then our website is air-marketing.co.uk. What about, what about TikTok? You're not using TikTok these days? Oh, mate, I'm a father of three, three young children. By the time I'm running a business um, and all that sort of stuff, uh, yeah, social media outside of LinkedIn. No TikTok, guys. LinkedIn. No, no, TikTok, no, no TikTok for me. LinkedIn, LinkedIn yeah. Instagram, um, Owen Richards underscore air, um, or, or, uh, or traditional email or, or, or website. I'm going to tag you on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The time is limited. I've got three boys under the age of six, so... Time on my phone outside of work is limited. So basically, you're re basically you're reliving your childhood three times. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> so the toys are for you, not for them. I've seen this before. Yeah, you're, you're a type A. You're a you're a type A hyper extrovert like me. So you're probably running around like crazy. Yeah, I am. Last night I was up till ten o'clock building a train track for my son's birthday, and I, I can't pretend it was for him. It was definitely for me. <laughs> I told you, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. I'll call you out on it. Just like I'll call out buyers for adversarial. That's my job now. Uh, I appreciate you being the show, man, guys. This is this is the Transform Sales Podcast. If you guys want to reach out to Owen, you connect with him. And thank you guys for listening. Take care.